0: Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young.
1: Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about smoke, taint, and smoke exposure for grapes and wine. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Anita Oberholster, who is a extension specialist in enology at UC Davis, or as some winemakers have referred to, as the head of the Smoke Task Force. Anita, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
1: I was wondering if you could give us a brief background on your background and your research that you do with your lab.
2: Okay, so I'm South African. And I studied chemistry and biochemistry at Stellenbosch University and I got a scholarship through the wine industry in South Africa to go and study wine chemistry in South Australia. And so I received my PhD in wine chemistry actually from the University of Adelaide. Had to go back to South Africa, you know, wanted to go back to South Africa. And I actually taught there and did applied research at the university there for almost 11 years. Before the chair then, uh, Andy Waterhouse here at the department at UC Davis, met me at a conference and called me one day and said, so Anita, how would you like to be the next extension specialist in the knowledge? Would you apply for this position? So I applied, came here, looked at the facilities and went, whoa, how can I say no? So, and it's been a fun ride ever since. So, what I really love about being an extension specialist is you do a lot of applied research. So, we really do a lot of different things. We do cleaning and sanitation in the winery, wastewater recycling. We look at red blotch disease, right? Which is the newest virus in grapevines. And now, since 2017, where fires have become a real problem, I've shifted my focus also on doing grape smoke exposure research.
1: So obviously the focus of today's show is to talk about smoke influence, smoke exposure, smoke taint. There's lots of words for it. I'm not sure if there's differences in those words. I was wondering if you could help define the context of how would you technically consider smoke and the influence it has on grapes and vines?
2: Okay, so we talk about
1: grape smoke exposure impact.
2: Because just because there's smoke in a vineyard, firstly, doesn't mean it's impacted. And even if it's impacted, it doesn't mean it's going to result in a wine that's tainted. So, the smoke taint really refers to a wine, you've made it, and then you realize, okay, it actually has a taint. Because a taint is, we define that as something that totally overpowers a wine, making it one-dimensional, and really decreasing the quality of the wine significantly. So, that's the taint part. But for the rest, we talk about levels of grape smoke exposure impact, and at what level will it result in smoke taint, and what level does it do anything.
0: So are we going to have a index for that, or do we have an index for the level of smoke taint or smoke exposure?
2: No, I really wish we did have an index, but unfortunately we don't. This is something that we really, really need to work on. I'm actually currently working with two colleagues from Oregon State University and Washington State University, applying for federal funding to do just that. It's really difficult. We're trying to collaborate with atmospheric scientists to really be able to relate smoke having like low-cost sensors or something that you can really determine the risk first in your vineyard and then an easy way to measure risk and what are the thresholds in wine that will, or in grapes that will result in a clearly smoke-impacted wine or smoke-tainted wine.
0: Right. Some people talk about exposure to the fires or the proximity to the fires and how long it's been there for. Are all those things at play? Uh, the way I kind of might think about the ideal world is there's some conversion that's not perfect, but it's sort of like a bricks or sugar measurement to alcohol level, right? So if there's some level of exposure level, and then how much smoke taint would you have?
2: So that is the aim, right? If we could get there, and that would be part of the index. But at this point in time, it's a very complex issue. What I can tell you is, it's less about proximity about then how fast it get the smoke get to you. You sometimes have a vineyard that's very close to a fire, but the wind direction was in the opposite direction. So it's really hard. And people want to ask me, what's a safe distance from the fire? Well, I can't tell you. It depends on the smoke, the density of the smoke. It depends on air movement, right? The temperature. There's a lot of impacts. So at this stage, we're saying very fresh and density of smoke. Correlates somewhat to risk. Because density of smoke is really what you're seeing is particulate matter. What I'm talking about are volatile phenols. You can't see them with the naked eye. They do decay and photooxidize in the atmosphere. So we don't know what that decay rate is and what it changes into, but Some anecdotal data indicates that if smoke is more than 24 hours old, it seems to have much less risk. And then you need to worry less about the density and the risk in your vineyard. But you know, like this year, when you have fires from everywhere, how do you know what's new smoke and what is old smoke? It gets really, really complex. So basically, we can't predict. We're at this horrible situation where if a grower had any kind of smoke in their vineyard, you have to tell them just to be sure... You need to test your gripes. I don't know if you'll be impacted. And so this is really important to realize that you could have 10 vineyards in an area with two impacted and eight not impacted, or vice versa. It is absolutely possible. Topography plays a role as well.
1: So in terms of as a human, when these fires are going on, you said based on the particulate matter, we're looking at the AQI. So you'd be looking to build a standard that is going to be based on volatile phenols that are in, in the environment. Okay, and is, is there a way to easily measure those in the air? Or is, is there a sensor like there is for particle matter?
2: So, you know, currently there are some low-cost sensors that look at VOCs, volatile organic compounds, right? Now, they mostly focus on things that have health impacts. So they haven't really focused on the set of or the group of volatile phenols we're interested in for great quality impact. So we are now, this is part of this project that we want to do is trying to expand it to these compounds, see if we can catch them as well. And then the ultimate goal is, can we just have a low-cost sensor or something that correlates to volatile phenols that we can measure that's more easily measurable to actually determine risk, right? Because at this point in time, everybody has to test and it's inundating our labs. They're overrun. You have a wait time of 35 days and you're supposed to harvest next week. That's not very helpful. So if we could at least determine risk better and say, these 100 grows, don't worry, these 20 take samples, right? Even if it's just like that, it would be already very, very helpful.
0: So thinking about volatile phenols, are the different fuels or the different things that burn, do they have different levels of volatile phenols? So if it's an oak tree versus a pine tree, does that make a difference in terms of smoking?
2: So the person that actually does some work in this is uh, Thomas Collins. He's a professor at Washington State University. And yes, they do differ in the different concentrations of the different volatile phenols. but all the wines he made so far and the ones I've tasted, they all still end up in a smoke impacted or smoke tainted wine if the levels are high enough. But there are slight differences. And that's something we also need to look at. It's like a lot of the data that's available comes from Australia because they've really been doing research in this field for the last 15 years. But their vegetation is not the same as ours. What is the difference there? And you know, and this is the thing, all these things cost a lot of money, and it takes a lot of time to get that all together. But I think if anybody thought this was not important, this year, definitely fix that perception.
1: So I'm curious on the timing of fires and how it correlates to the grape or vine life cycle. So wildfire season in California roughly runs from May to October. Obviously, there's outliers in that. But I'm curious on how that different timing of the fire can impact the grapes and the vines and result in smoke exposure. Is there a better time to have a fire or a worse time to have a fire?
2: Yeah, you know, you'd rather not have it at all, but if you're going to have it. Yes, for a wine grape growing region, you basically want a fire either... You really want the fire when your grapes are off the vine. That would be the best, right? Then there's some studies that looked at when are grapes the most susceptible to smoke. And basically, prior to berry formation, obviously, that would be the second best. Then if you have a berry, we used to say if it's rock hard, then it's less susceptible and only with variation. That's when you get sugar accumulation, softening of the berry and coloring if it's a, a red berry, right? Then it's more susceptible. But now the Australians have told me their wildfires were much earlier than usual. And they had vineyards with rock hard berries that was also highly impacted. So now we're basically saying if there's a berry on the vine, you need to watch out. You may be impacted and you have a risk, unfortunately.
1: So outside of the fruit set, there's no real impact to the actual vine. If, for example, if it was post-harvest and you had a fire, there, outside of potentially losing vines from the fires, you're, the, the actual smoke impact or ash and there isn't, doesn't have any long-term impacts on the vine or the soils?
2: So it, they absorb on the berries and also on leaves. There's no carryover effect. So it's not because it was exposed this year, that next year, that grape quality as far as smoke impact It starts from scratch, from zero, there will be no smoke impact per se. We are looking at, okay, what about continual exposure to smoke? What about the general health of the vine itself? Will it impact fruitfulness, right? So yield in coming years. So there's been a very limited amount of studies and it seems like in general, the vine recovers pretty quickly. But if this happens every year, perhaps then you will start seeing an impact. And that's also something that we want to study. There's a very, very long list of things we still need to study. As far as ash in the soils, if you get, I think there was a study that looked at like nine years of ash in soils. And by that time, you start getting an increase in pH. In your soils, but you really do need consistently fires and ash, and then you can start increasing the pH in the soils. But so for one year now and then, I wouldn't be too concerned. But otherwise, soil measurements, you know, you can have your soils tested and you can try and adjust that pH change.
0: That's good, isn't it? Then you don't have to add lime to the soil. So it's automatic.
2: (laughs) It depends on where you are, right? True.
0: So you talked about one of the big things is lab testing. And I've heard that there's a difference between grape testing and wine testing, partly because there's translocation of some of the phenols into the sugars of the grape and all that kind of thing. What's the difference between testing the grapes and testing the wine?
2: Okay, so it's actually very similar tests, except that the sample is different and more sample preparation for grapes. But what happens is when volatile phenols absorb through the skin, so they're not sitting on the outside, they're inside. And we think it's part of the defense mechanism of the plant. It has enzymes that actually adds various sugars to these volatile phenols. It seems to happen pretty quickly, but we don't really know that good idea about kinetics, but it happens pretty quickly. Now, when you make your wine, you crush your grapes... Now, wine have a pretty low pH, and it seems that some of the bound does start hydrolyzing during a fermentation, but not a massive amount, only a small percentage. And this hydrolysis process can happen with five, six years of bottle aging still. So it's more that the combination of free to bound do change slightly. And to analyze the bound is way more complex than analyzing the free. So people want more of it in the free form. And a lot of the commercial labs in the U.S. measure mostly the free. So your wine number can sometimes be a little bit more accurate and more predictive of smoke tank development due to that fact.
0: Got it. And when they do the tests, my understanding is that they primarily test for a couple of the main markers, right? Glycol and 4-methylglycol, I think. But smoke has a lot of volatile phenols that can be in there as well. Is, Is that right?
2: Yes. So, you know, this comes from in the beginning they start using methods that use for oak to analyze oak compounds, right? Because a lot of these compounds are on oak and toasted oak. And then they quickly realize, okay, some of the other like eugenol, vanillin, they're not important to smoke and development. Let's focus on for forming gualcool. But then we realize the predictive power was really, really bad. And the Australians I worked out, okay know they've associated seven volatile funnels with smoke taint development in wine. And then after a while they realize, oh boy, no, it's still not very predictive. There's a lot of this can be bound. And it takes a very long time to hydrolyze. So really if you want the most complete picture, you should be doing at least seven free and bound. But now in the research community, we're still talking about is this all the compounds we should be analyzing? Are there other compounds? Because there's still a huge gray zone of maybe, maybe not. And this is mostly because both these free and bound compounds are present naturally in grapes. Mm-hmm. not exposed to smoke, it will never, ever become a taint. So this is very interesting. So there's this like, too much of a good thing is not a good thing anymore. There's this tipping point where it actually gives us taint. And we know that different varieties of grapes have different natural amounts of these compounds. And some handle smoke better than others and have higher amounts of these compounds and they seem to handle it a little bit better. So this is all part of the complexing factor, we need to figure out for what variety, how much can you have elevated above normal to really have a real risk of having a quality impact in your
1: final product?
2: And that is really quite a very difficult question to answer.
1: So as you had mentioned that the tests to do these, the labs were backed up by 35 days. If you had to harvest what could producers do to do the quick test on their own? Is there something if you can you train a palate to be to have sensory perception that will give you an inclination of where you should be testing or what you should be testing, or is that only testable in a lab?
2: So no, there's people that say they can taste it in a grape berry. That is very very difficult to do because the sugars in the berries actually camouflage or mask the smoke tank. So this is why we've been recommending even to grape growers to do bucket fermentations. Get representative samples, do a quick five-day bucket fermentation, and then you have a wine. Firstly, that analysis is a little bit more accurate and predictive, but you can taste it. Now, 20 to 25% of people aren't actually that sensitive to smoke dent. We think it's because even these bound compounds, so you can't smell a bound compound. It's not volatile. But we think there are bacterial enzymes in our saliva that can hydrolyze these compounds in your mouth. And this is why it has this distinctive like retronasal at the back of your throat ashtray character are the bound that's being released. And they have a synergistic impact. So they work together with the volatiles and amplifies the smoke impact. So for people that don't have that, perhaps that's why they're not very sensitive. So yes, you can be very sensitive and you can train yourself to be as sensitive as that piece of analytical equipment. But it takes a little bit of training. And we tell people you need controls. You need like a high-end smoke impacted control. And I personally say you also need a control that's not impacted at all. And when you have people evaluating your wine, first make sure that they can get the impacted one because that tells you they're at least sensitive for the character they're supposed to be tasting for. And then have that control wine there because I've also seen people that now just taste smoke everywhere. So you neither do you want the person that just imagines smoke everywhere to tell you your wine is smoke impacted when it's not.
0: <laughs> so people who can't taste or do smoke taint, are these like basically smokers?
2: No, you know, there hasn't been a, a direct correlation, but we do know that smokers are less sensitive to aromas. I don't know about the retronasal. That's such an interesting question. See, now another research idea. Just got it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I, it, it reminds me of that like 20% of the population that can't smell rotundone or peppers aromas in Syrah. And I was wondering if there was a correlation between that compound, that aroma, that volatile ester and smoke tank.
2: We just don't know, right? So you have specific receptors for specific kind of compounds. It's sort of like that enzyme lock and key thing. That's how aroma works. And then it has association with sensors in the brain. So we just don't know. There's so much about this field that we don't know. I mean, you can keep hundreds of researchers happy for a very long time just studying this.
1: Yeah, it feels like you're going to be, it doesn't sound like the problem's going away anytime soon either. So it sounds like you're, unfortunately you know, not, but you know,
2: we're chipping away at
1: it. So testing this year seems to be by many people that I, I was actually up and up the weekend the glass fire started. And the recurring theme that everybody I talked to with the winemakers up there was that testing was a bottleneck. And, you know, there was a, this long, long line and uh, people that only major corporations that had their own labs were doing that. and They weren't necessarily sharing results. I'm curious on, are these tests just more laborious than other types of testing? Or is just a preparation factor in terms of they weren't prepared for doing this type of test in the labs? It's
2: pretty laborious. It's very expensive. You need to use a gas chromatographer mass spectrometer. So, you know, quarter of a million dollars right there. And you get super ones, so 152. And this is not your average person. You need a trained technician to analyze it. The methods aren't easy. To get that up and running and validate it is not a quick process. So, yes, this is part of the reason. And so, you know, we have labs that have plenty of instruments, but the, they were just inundated. I mean, this was unprecedented that such a wide area was impacted right when harvest was starting. It's, you know, are you expecting somebody to have very expensive paperweights in case they may need it once in five years, right? We're all hoping. And, you know, there's a lot of extra labs that also now came online to do these analysis. So next time, we will be better prepared. But I also think it's a question of having perhaps labs that can come online, that actually focuses on other things and can come online when there's a great need and then go back to doing what they're actually doing most of the time. More having backup labs for in case it may be needed.
0: So a grower or winemaker get their lab results back and they have maybe a moderate level to maybe a severe level of smoke taint. Under each of those situations, what should they do?
2: So, for firstly, if you have crop insurance, that goes into your evaluation, right? For crop insurance, they use a certain number. So, if the number is higher than that, then at least you can get crop insurance. But that doesn't even cover all your costs. So, your next step is having a conversation. Whoever has your you have your grape contract with, right? And that's a conversation with the winemaker. So, it's really very individualistic. What's the next step? It really depends on the specific grower and their relationship. With their winery. I mean, sometimes you have the situation where the grower and the winery is the same entity. So it's quite interesting. And definitely, you know, if there, I think where growers had crop insurance, there was more tendency to be safer and rather not take the grapes. And where a grower didn't have crop insurance, the wineries were trying to see if there's any way they can accommodate the grapes.
0: Right. I've heard some producers who have contracts with growers want to put in a clause around this and mandate the growers have crop insurance going forward. But given this has been happening almost every year since 2017, do you think crop insurance insurers will still want to insure for fire in the crops or will it just be expensive, crazy expensive?
2: Also, well, crop insurance is quite heavily subsidized, right, by the Federal Crop Insurance Corporation. So the premium that the grower pays, now that I don't know what's going to happen there. It's already, this is to make it affordable, right? If it wasn't subsidized, it would be probably not that affordable to most growers. You already also have additional insurance you can take out for just like a decrease in quality, not total crop loss. Even that is more expensive and there's a much smaller percentage of growers that have That kind of insurance. It really depends on who you are growing those grapes for and the value of those grapes.
1: You had mentioned earlier that all the grapes already have some amount of these volatile compounds in the grapes already. And I'm just curious, are all grapes impacted by smoke taint in the same way or smoke exposure in the same way?
2: You know, this is something we're still trying to figure out. We know that naturally different varieties have different amounts. Syrah is a huge outlier. It has much higher amounts than other varieties. It's very difficult. We haven't been able to find a direct correlation between this one is more sensitive and why is it more sensitive. And here in in the U.S., we just don't have enough data. The Australians have a lot of data, but I don't know if it really relates to our situation here. We know that a wine like Pinot Noir, for instance, does seem to show smoke tank way easier. So we know Pinot Noir is pretty sensitive. I'm not sure about the other varieties. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence. This is really building up a library of, this is baseline, this was smoke impacted at similar levels, and this one sensorially was seen as tainted and this one wasn't. And to build up that kind of library will take a lot of time.
1: So to think about Pinot Noir with a thin skin versus Nebula with a thick skin or cluster shaping, like how tight the clusters are versus how loose. Do we think that those have a correlation or differences between them?
2: So at this point in time, we haven't been able to find a correlation between thickness of the skins or a bunch of morphologies like architecture. We do know there's a lot of variability. So this is why I, we say to people: if you want, even if you need for your test result only 200 berries, go and take like 40 clusters that represent your block. Take it all apart, have this use, you know, that you have something that really represents that block. Because even if you take one bunch and you could analyze different berries on that bunch, it's a huge variation that you will see right there. People that have taken multiple samples from the same block will sometimes get very different results. So it's very, very important that you take a representative sample.
1: And in terms of the grape aromas merging or working with the volatile compounds, would the goal be to have like a, a matrix where, hey, this variety, if you cleared this threshold, then it's a it's an issue? Is that the goal to get to some kind of matrix where you understand like what the thresholds are by grape variety?
2: Yeah, I think even if it's not by grape variety, perhaps by some other matrix measurement. So this is the problem we do for many of these compounds. We know their individual threshold levels, right? So this is at the level in a base wine that you can actually smell or perceive them. The problem is those values are huge. Then you look at smoke-impacted wines and they have low below their, way below their threshold levels because they are actually interacting with the matrix and they're, they have synergistic impacts. So they're built on top of each other. So seven individual volatile phenol compounds give you way more... Smoke impact, than just seven times, okay, That comp- or just adding it all together, summing it together. So that's the problem. We know alcohol, sugar, phenolic compounds all have an impact on the expression of smoke. Um, we also know that if you have green character, it actually enhances the smokiness, where if you have a lot of fruity S3 smells, it actually helps mask it. So, there's a very interesting interplay here with the rest of the matrix. So, we definitely want to try. Elizabeth Tomasino you know, and myself really want to work on this, figuring out what are the threshold levels for a specific matrix, even if it's just like low bodied, medium bodied, full bodied. But we want to start seeing if we can actually pull it to different varieties or to of style of a variety.
1: And last question on grapes. In terms of harvesting, is hand harvesting versus machine harvesting? Does that create any difference in terms of the impact or amount of smoke that you may spread into the grapes or the must?
2: Because the the volatile phenols are in them can be in the material other than grapes, so we don't know about rakers. We really need to check that out. But we know it's in the leaves and it's in the skin. So obviously, when you do machine harvesting, you get more damaged. A damage there, and if you're like still trucking it to your winery, you have more time for it to extract. So yes, if it is possible, it could be an advantage to do hand picking for whites. But if you're going to make a red wine, you're anyway going to, you know, ferment with skins and seeds and so then I don't think it really makes any kind of sense, right?
0: So on the white making side, for whites, I often hear just press it off as soon as possible so it's not on the skins and then for red, sometimes we hear Maybe make rosé, but I've heard mixed things about the rosé element because you're also creating a a wine with less other compounds and less extraction and power that make even a smaller amount of smoke taint relatively more apparent. Are there any rules of thumb for what to do with winemaking for the different types?
2: You know, it's very vague, but I personally would say low impact. If you have low impact, you get about 30%-ish of the Potential volatile phenols that's in the skins were standard rosé practices. So if the impact is low enough, you should be okay. But if you have a high impact grade that have a lot of volatile phenols, even that 30% is probably too much. And then, yes, you have it in a matrix that's more like a white wine than a red wine. So it will more easily stand out because we know phenolics and things can actually mask Smoke impact. So this is the conundrum. And then there's the economical issue, because you can't really ask the same for a bottle of rosé. then you would ask for, for instance, your non-propellic cap.
0: Do things like acidity or, you know, different levels of pH show the compounds? I mean, maybe the enzymes don't work the same, whether it releases in your in your mouth or something like that.
2: The pH ranges impacting the enzymes is outside the range that we naturally have for wine. So within our pH range of 3.2 to 4, whatever, it really doesn't have much of an impact. Alcohol, anything above 10% or more actually have an impact, inhibits the enzymes. A little bit of residual sugar, three grams or above, can also have that impact. I have to say, this is based on like very little data. I hate giving advice on like There's one study here or one little investigation here, but, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that's the best answer I can give you.
0: Okay. And for red wine, does stem inclusion or things like carbonic maceration help or hurt smoke taint?
2: You know, actually, I had a lot of questions pertaining to that this year. And I talked to colleagues at the Australian Wine Research Institute during their horrific wildfire. They also did a lot of studies. So I asked them if they've looked into this, because none of the researchers here have. And basically, he said, not specifically, but they made a lot of different Pinot Noirs, different styles. And one of them was carbonic maceration. And that was one of the worst wines that they made. So, you know... They didn't analyze the Reiki, so he couldn't specifically say it. So as me, I'm being responsive to whatever the industry wants to know. I actually made two white wines with whole cluster pressing, and I made a Cabernet wine here with massive amount of Reiki in it. So I'll let you know. So hopefully by next year, I can answer that question.
0: Great. And is there any research then on impacts on the barrels? So if we make a wine, you put barrel it down, it's in a barrel and the wine has significant smoke taint to it. Does that barrel keep some of that for the following year?
2: You know, chemically, if you think about it, I would think that your normal cleaning and sanitation protocols should remove these compounds. But then there's anecdotal, you know, this winemakers that tell me that they really do believe that that barrel is impacted and that when they put a subsequent wine in there that it became more smoky. So, you know, and sometimes theory and practice doesn't actually go that well, right? Not hand in hand. So that is another thing on my list. I made a lot of smoke impacted wines and I am going to put it in a few barrels and see what happens. Now when people ask me, I'm like, you know, clean and sanitize it put water or model something in there and taste it and analyze it and see what are you getting? Because for me, it all depends on how deep they go into the wood and how far you can clean,
1: right? So I was hoping we could talk about some of the solutions as this seems like it's going to be a recurring problem that we're going to have, especially in California. So if we look at prevention, are there any forms of like physical barriers or sprays that we could quickly deploy to help us prevent the impact of smoke exposure for grapes? So, you know,
2: we've been looking at some stuff. The Australians have been looking at some biofilms, and the results at this point in time is very variable. The Australians looked at kaolin. Kaolin is like a type of clay that you spray on grapes to prevent sunburn. And out of three varieties that they tested, only and Merlot, it showed some advantage, right? So it's very variable. And they said they think it's because of the efficiency of coverage, because if you're actually spraying in the vineyard, they would estimate that only 30 to 40 percent of your bunches actually have the barrier on it. The rest would still be exposed to smoke. Then a lot of people have been talking about a study from University of British Columbia where they looked at a biofilm. It was Parker. It's something they use on cranberries to prevent cracking. They tried it out and got pretty good results on Pinot Noir, but it's only one season. And they applied it more than a week before intentional smoke exposure. They also tried some other fungicides and things that had an, like an oily uh, wetting agent or sticky agent in there. And that actually made it worse. So now we're really concerned that anything that is like wet or oiliness on the berry can potentially be like a conduit into the berry or increasing the surface area in some way and actually resulting you absorbing more. I also know the Parker study, they repeated it again and then they applied it just a day before and then he just said it didn't look as good. So it tells me that timing of this barrier on also have an influence. And it may be that it needs to be 100% dry. And so in general, now we just tell people, we don't know yet. We have to do more studies. In any case, don't do anything when there's loads of smoke in your vineyard. Whatever you want to do, just wait until it's clear.
1: Right? Yeah. I'm wondering if there's any form of like canopy management that could also help reduce the contact. Obviously, you'd have to have a crazy canopy and then the sun wouldn't get in. But
2: you know, there's, once again, there's some studies that say, that it help? Because they absorb onto the leaves as well. And there seems to be able to, some of these compounds to move from the leaves to the berries, but it seems to be a very, very small amount. So in general, we don't want to tell people to pull leaves. Because another thing, when you have leaves covering your bunches, it's sort of protecting it against ash and some of the volatile funnels. And obviously, then you have to worry about sunburn and all these other things. At this point in time, we're like, not saying anything. One of the farm advisors actually, and someone in Valley, had a study looking at exactly that, canopy management. And he calls me and says, Anita, we had some smoke down here. Do you want to like take the berries and analyze this? So that's part of the hundreds of samples in my freezers. But that would be interesting to see because he had like total open canopies, total full canopies and in between the two. So that would be interesting.
1: And in terms of triaging, say you definitely got some smoke exposure on your grapes. Is there a way to wash them with air or wash them with water or, or I've heard ozone? Are there things that you can do to get rid of the ash and volatile things that are on the skins?
2: Yeah, so obviously, like I mentioned before, the volatile phenols that absorb have absorbed, right? You can't wash them off because they're inside. We've tried. As far as the ash goes, it's another one of those maybe, maybe not. So we used to say, don't worry about ash. Ash is carbon. But now, so when we, myself and Tom Collins at Washington State University, unbeknownst to us, we actually both did the same thing. There was a lot of ash here in Davis, and I actually collected it and we analyzed it using a GCMS, and it gave off quite a bit of volatile phenols and for quite a few days. So now I am concerned about ash again. But now here's the conundrum. When you have ash in your vineyard, now, like I said, you don't want to spray anything with all the smoke in the air. When the smoke has cleared, if you wash it, you don't want to push it into the bunch. You want to be able to actually clean it that it's off, right? But now you have wet ash lying on the valley floor, on your vineyard floor, and wet ash actually gives off more volatile phenols than dry ash. So which one is better, ash on the floor or ash on the berry? Now, when you start having dew in the morning and it's anyway wet, now then that question even changes even more, right? And so at this point, people were like begging me, okay, what can I do? What can I do? And I said, well, okay, if you want to, you know, and there's no smoke in the air and you want to wash your grapes, you can try. I have no idea if this is just added labor. And I think perhaps for fresh ash, when you're processing, perhaps those volatile phenols, if they're absorbed on there, can be released. We did a few trials here. Once again, this season, we washed some vines immediately when the smoke cleared, Others we washed just before harvest and we did wines from both. We did have berry samples that we washed and didn't wash and we didn't see a difference between the two with ash and not ash. But then I don't really know. By that time, the ash was pretty old. So this is the thing. It's one of those things that we don't really know, but hopefully next year I would know better.
1: So in terms of drastic measures, say I've made a wine, I know it's impacted. Can I use some crazy mad scientist cultured yeast or enzymes to help strip things out? Can I do some intense filtering on the wines or use something like flash detente?
2: Okay, yeah. So there's some things that work. There are some fruity yeast that can help. And some yeast do release, seems to me, more of the bound than the others. But it's the impact is very variable. It depends on the matrix. It depends on the variety. That We're not really making any clear recommendations. And a lot of it has a small impact. So in your low-impacted wines, perhaps it will help. But it seems to be temporary because, you know, the fruit intensity of wines decrease quite quickly with aging. So then it, the smokiness can come back. I've done some tests. Some yeast does look better than others. The well, ones that looked the best for me for CAP was the ones that the Australians thought looked the worst. So it tells you the impact of matrix. But then there's people that saying, you know, what about oak chips and all these kind of things. Once again, if I found some good results with oak chips that gives just uplifts fruit, adds complexity, it hides it. But eventually it's like it just comes back again. So it's, this is the problem, flash to tund. I have tasted wines that was flashed to tunded, And look at the numbers, free and bound. It gets rid of a little bit of the free, none of the bound, and you can't taste it. Because it's just so much fruitiness and so much knowledge in that wine. But how long does it last, right? It, that is always the question, right? What is the risk if you bottle that wine? This is the conundrum. Things like activated charcoal, uh, reverse osmosis, spinning cone technology. They all help as amelioration and try to fix if you ended up with a smoke factor wine. And they all work pretty well at removing the free. The bound, however, most of them stay. And all these techniques lack specificity. So meaning it will take color out. It will take other phenolics out. It will take other aroma compounds out. So the more you have to treat, the higher the overall impact on overall quality Enzymes, I've tried five food-grade enzymes. Australian Wine Research Institute told me that they tried 15. Very variable. They don't really cleave much. If they cleave, it's just like one of the compounds. Nothing in juice. So people shouldn't even waste their time in juice. If you have so much sugar there, it just totally suppresses the enzymes. So this is the problem. We're now looking at specialized enzymes, engineering enzymes that can... Focus specifically on these kind of compounds, specifically the volatile phenol glycosides, because obviously there's a lot of other glycosides we don't specifically want to cleave. For instance, for a red wine, you anthocyanin glycosides, right? So this is the problem. You will need something that firstly, wine is a pretty harsh environment, a lot of alcohol, low pH, and then you want it to be very specific. So if we could do that. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> so
1: you know, uh, sounds like a great research or a great grant to earn there. <laughs>
2: so uh, we're aiming. You know, I just I know people. I collaborate with all the people <laughs> that know all about the more the basic sciences of all these things. Yeah, but so this is something we're just starting off. So we'll see. We'll see. But I'm going to be optimistic.
1: And what about the case of like a hard pivot to distill and make? Are we going to see a lot of 2020 Napa brandy coming out? Yes,
2: you know, during the distilling process, you will remove a lot of the volatile phenols. I don't know about the bound, but if you're heating and distilling it, you probably would cleave some of them as well. So, yeah, I think that could be a potential solution. I haven't tested those, so I I can't tell you the lab results of those products, but it's possible.
1: And then my last question on a kind of solution. So I'm curious, given your look at all these different solutions, are you seeing the different categories of wine are able to mitigate the impact of smoke from like a low cost to like a ultra premium? Are you seeing that some are hurt more or faring better with that kind of flavor profile?
2: You know, it's very, it really does depend on the individual winery. But I would say when you have, you know, luxury, I'm really talking now high end, right? They have no margin. For quality, the margin is really small. So, for them, the moment they think those grapes are impacted, treatment is not even an option. Okay. So, their options are much more limited. As soon as you go to like the medium range, then it depends on your inventory. If you have large volumes of wine and you have a lot of labels, then you could go, okay, I can treat this wine, but I can sell it in this category. Right. What I try to tell people is, I really want. The consumers to trust the grape and wine industry. We really are focused on that those smoke impacted wine would hopefully reach the shelf. And definitely, I don't know of anybody that want to impact their market share that way, right? One time somebody picks up a bottle and it's not the quality that they want, or it's smoke impacted, then they're just not going to buy it again. They can go on social media and say something. It's just not worth the rest. So everybody would want To have a good quality wine and within your price range, have the quality that you can expect in that price range. So, this is why I say if you have a lot of different labels at different price ranges, then say your high end you had to treat, but now the quality is a little bit less, but it's not impacted anymore. So, now at least you have another label under which you can potentially sell that or blending. If you have a small amount of impacted wine and you can blend in the way. So the volume does give you a little bit more flexibility. And also, in obviously, in the cheaper high volume range, you probably can get away with a lot more treatment. Uh, there's a lot of color you can put back, other wine tricks, sugar, you know, people that like sweet reds or I don't know, white Zinfandels may increase in the market. You do have a little bit more flexibility when you're, I would say, larger volume almost.
0: And so you're teeing into one of the key points for 2020 vintage, especially for with the consumer. Are there any wines that consumers should be avoiding? You said at the luxury end, will the bound come out? Like, will producers just not even know that there's bound compounds in there?
2: Almost everybody I know at the Luxury inn, if they have any doubt, they didn't even make the wines. People were really, because there's such a gray zone of, is this more than baseline? Is it not more than baseline? Will it impact your wine down the line? If they were sure, they did not even make the wine. People were really more erring on the side of caution here. So I really want to tell people that, and it's very, you know, it's very unpredictable. I just told you, you could have 10 vineyards around a fire and the one could be impacted and the others not. We've seen it. Those trains told me in Adelaide Hills. I mean, their fires were so bad, the vine- vines actually burned. And I asked them, so any wines being produced from those regions? They're like, yes, this one, this one, this one is fine. These were basically burned down. It's so unpredictable. So, Just trust the winery. Trust that if that wine is on the shelf, it would be what you would expect. And don't assume, uh, yeah, you will maybe see that some at the high luxury end just won't have a vintage 2020. That is possible. Yes. But you won't even, you know, except if you're really, that's your favorite wine and you're looking for that specific vintage, you may notice it. But no, trust what's there. The wine industry has had a very, very rough year, the grape and wine industry like almost every other industry, I think, this year, right? It's
0: 2020. Yeah,
2: so I really do. You know, COVID was hard already on the medium to small. That's very dependent on, you know, tasting room sales and things like that. And a lot of them make revenue from other things, right? From festivals and from tourism, all things that were greatly impacted. A lot of people sitting a lot of stock, I think. So there's that. If they make less of 2020, don't worry. There's some more of 2019. And eighteen, or if you're like me and you have increased your um, wine consumption, (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely back to every night having a glass of wine and perhaps a second one.
1: (laughs) Hopefully, it's not your test samples. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: let me just say, finally, my wine inventory is actually fitting in my wine fridge.
1: Wow.
2: That, hasn't, that hasn't happened for many years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm curious, Smoketane isn't really a new thing. In fact, you mentioned Australia. I know Chile's had wildfires. I'm curious on what kind of global knowledge sharing is happening. How are these educational organizations connecting with each other to share knowledge so that we can all, when they're happening at different times, can all be up to date on what's the latest information?
2: You know, at many, many levels. Our department, Viticulture and Analogy here at UC Davis, is actually talking to the AWRI, University of Adelaide, to collaborate. Then I know several people there, so we just talk informally. I'm even collaborating with some of the researchers there. Then we have the uh, West Coast um, Smoke Exposure Task Force that arranged meetings with everybody. So even before our wildfire started this year, I've already had like three conference calls with all the researchers in Australia that basically work on grape smoke exposure. So there's a lot of, I've never worked in a field where people are talking that much to each other, sharing ideas, what works, what doesn't work, even to the point of, okay, what are you studying next? What should we be doing next? Trying to not overlap, but complement each other. So, I mean, that has been a really great experience. And even here in the US, it's mainly myself Elizabeth Tomasino from OSU and Tom Collins from Washington State University, we have weekly calls. We talk to each other all the time. So that's the good thing. So we are definitely not, we know what the other one is doing. We're trying to make sure that we fill in the gaps and that we do things that's complementary as far as possible. And sometimes it's a good thing when you have more than one person working at a problem, taking different approaches, even if they're actually looking at exactly the same problem. That is sometimes a very good way to go as well.
0: So going forward for wineries and grape growers, which may have potential smoke taint or fire issues in the future, what are some of the best practices you might recommend for them?
2: Contracts. For, you know, at this point in time, if you're a grower, you need crop insurance. You just do. There's really no way about it anymore. And then for the contracts between the wineries and the grower to have those contracts as clear as possible based on reasonable facts, right? This is the problem. People ask my advice about contracts all the time, and it's so difficult because I just don't have the data to say, yes, this is your cutoff, right? I do think they need more detail there. You know, some contracts still have this vague thing about quality. They need a paragraph that focuses on smoke exposure impact. How would it be determined? How should it be tested? What are the levels? What are the steps? You know, even though we don't know the levels, I think it needs to be quite flexible, but there needs to be a clear stepwise, this is the actions we take if this coming to play so that there's just clearer communication, even if the communication is not what the winery would like or what the grower would like, but at least that there's like, okay, this is what we're talking about. This has been hashed out before all the stress and the decision making that needs to happen in five seconds, right? That would already be very, very helpful.
1: So, as we have a guest on our show, we always ask them this question a lasting trend in a fizzling fat. Although I didn't think it was going to be super relevant. So, I wanted to pivot that concept in and ask you what do you think a piece of information, technology, or process will be available next year in case these fires happen in Northern California next year?
2: I don't know. You know, I was talking about that enzyme. If we're lucky, <laughs> it's all around. So, that would be very nice, right? We're all looking at barrier sprays. Perhaps we're lucky and there's something you can spray on your grapes that will actually give you some kind of protection. At this point in time, it's just really better information, clearer information, better what is our risk and what is not risk. We're sort of improving the information all the time. No, it's not clear cut. It's not 100%. Improvement on what we already know, unfortunately, rather than... Yay, I've solved the problem. I think that unfortunately will take many, many years of study.
1: And on a different note, what was the worst example of misinformation or fake news that you heard during this year's wildfire season (laughs) around smoke tank?
2: You know, actually, some of them I heard less this year because we've gone through 2017 and 2018, right? People believing that grapes are only susceptible to smoke at certain times, which is not true washing grapes. But you know, it's more, there's a lot of people that would say, I have the answer to your problems. I can fix, you know, smoke taint. And there's a lot of things like I've discussed that can help a little bit. But saying that you have the fix for smoke taint is like a little, you know, over advertising. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, new technology. It's interesting. Um, there's a whole question about ozone, right? Everybody keeps asking me about ozone. I don't know. So we have an ozone machine here in our brewery, and I went to of five different varieties. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's things that actually, there's a lot of technology out there that's applied for a different reason that people think, oh, well, perhaps. You know, perhaps it could help for this problem as well. A lot of medicine works that way. So it's not like there's not some good ideas in there, but none of these have really been tested thoroughly. So I can't really tell you what these things
1: will do. I was just assuming there was some form of wine industry, snake oil salesman that was pitching a cure for something, but had no scientific backing whatsoever.
2: I am not going <laughs> to... No, mostly it's really stuff that's been used for something else and would be proclaimed to be the thing that can solve the smoke time problem, although there's no data to support this. and But like I always say, anything is possible, right? Some of the best findings in science have been by chance. So I'm not going to say it's impossible, but yeah, sometimes I do look at this and go, well, you're very (laughs) (laughs) over-optimistic.
1: Well, Anita, I really want to thank you for your time. I know you're extremely busy, especially this time of year with everything that's been going on in 2020. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us and really educate us on smoke exposure for wines and grapes. Absolutely. It was fun.
0: Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time. Cheers. All uh-huh. right.